Welcome to The Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating professional biomedical and applied ethics at the University of Leeds. Hi everyone, so today I'm here with Alina to talk about the uh, results or the kind of the outcome of her dissertation research. So, hi Alina. Hey, everyone. Um, so yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about my dissertation that I did um, for the Idea Center um, for the Master's in MA Clinical Ethics. Okay, great. So could you just maybe just for the the audience has given a bit of a, a bit of a sort of brief summary of uh, what the project is about. Yeah, so essentially I focused on the ethics of blame and um, also the concept of epistemic injustices in the context of borderline personality disorder. Essentially what I argued was that the way that we treat patients with borderline personality disorder is unjust. Uh, so I focused on moral responsibility and the way that we blame patients, later arguing that the way that we blame them is what Fricker calls hermeneutical injustice. So it's quite a chunky dissertation, but when I split it up into four sections, it made a bit more sense. So I guess it's perhaps it's useful to mention that I suppose there's, there's, a, there's a gender element to this as well, yeah. right? Yeah, so I argued that part of the reason that we blame patients with borderline personality disorder is to do with the fact that it's a condition that we often associate with women and traits associated with femininity. And part of being part of that marginalized group means that sometimes we inappropriately blame them for things such as outbursts of anger, for example. So I'm I'm not really an expert on the um, technical side here, but as I understand it, it's a diagnosis that's uh, much more common for women than men. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So I think something like 90% of people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder will be a woman. That's not to say that men never get diagnosed with it, but it is something that we associate with women. And even if you look at the history of psychiatry and the way that borderline personality disorder has kind of come about, it does tend to be associated with femininity. Okay, great. So um, just for any audience members who are not familiar, could you just tell us a little bit more about what borderline personality disorder is? Yeah, of course. Um, so borderline personality disorder is essentially, it's characterized by behaviors such as frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, intense relationships, being impulsive, things like recurrent suicidal behavior, inappropriate anger, and feelings of emptiness. So a lot of these symptoms are kind of seen as a long-term thing as opposed to um, shorter illnesses such as a depressive episode. So it's a personality problem more than a short-term brain problem, if that makes sense. So would, would that be the difference between a personality disorder and other kind of diagnoses? Yeah, so generally personality disorders are seen as enduring, persistent and pervasive bits of a person's behavior as opposed to a shorter-term problem. So I think Things like um, antisocial personality disorder or things like that, that we kind of know, like the idea, I guess, is that um, people will have these traits for the, the rest of their lives and all that can really be done is to manage them. 
Is that right? Yeah, that is the idea. Um, okay, so so before we get into the specifics of uh, what you argued, uh, it'd be interesting to know kind of how you how you arrived on this project. So what what got you interested in this? What got you thinking about this topic? Yeah, so I spent a bit of time on a psychiatric ward. It was a woman's psychiatric ward during my third year of medical school. And that's where I kind of started to notice that patients with borderline personality disorder were being treated in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. And it was something I didn't really have vocabulary for at the time, but I found that patients were often being labeled as difficult or manipulative. And often they weren't really being treated in a way that I think is right to summarize it really. So I remember people saying things like, oh, they know exactly what they're doing when they were really unwell and um, having outbursts of anger at staff and things like that. And it kind of felt like a way of blaming patients for things that clinicians themselves diagnose them with. So I found it a bit funny that people were being diagnosed with a disorder that suggests that they have problems with controlling their emotions and then later being blamed for exhibiting a symptom of it, I guess. Yeah, so this idea that they're being blamed for their diagnoses in a way that we we perhaps wouldn't blame people who've been diagnosed with an, another kind of uh, psychiatric disorder or personality disorder. We'd kind of think that the disorder sort of excused them in some sense from blame. Yeah, so there was one study that I looked at while I was writing it, which was quite interesting, which looked at the way that we treat patients with schizophrenia as opposed to patients with personality disorders. And I think that really captures it because when patients with schizophrenia clearly are having hallucinations, we don't tend to think that it's a personal failing on their part. Whereas often when a patient with borderline personality disorder has problems in relationships with others, we do blame them. Yeah, and I suppose the same even with um, sort of schizophrenia leading to serious violent crimes. People often feel you shouldn't shouldn't blame this person for that because they were in the grip of this illness or this diagnosis sort of means that, yeah, they're not to blame in some sense. I mean, obviously, this is a philosophy podcast, but discussing blame, responsibility, and these kind of things are very complex topics, even for philosophy. So perhaps we should get into the sort of the technical aspects of your argument. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what the first section of my dissertation was about. It was looking at moral responsibility because I think that is where you have to start with this topic because when we're talking about blame, we need to figure out whether or not people can be responsible in the first place, really, which is a massive topic within itself. So there's quite a bit to go through. But um, generally speaking, I think responsibility hinges on whether or not you understand what you're doing. So having an epistemic understanding of what it is that you're carrying out and as well as, I guess, understanding the consequences of your actions. So being able to have that foresight. And when we're distinguishing blame from responsibility, how would we be doing that? That is a massive topic within itself. And a lot of people have different views on it. A lot of philosophers, I don't, a lot of philosophers, I think, would say that they are one and the same, that to be morally responsible for something, that's essentially saying that they're being praised or blamed for something. I think there is one author who I found really interesting in the context of this, 
Picard talks a lot about how blame can be separated from responsibility. And she talks about how that is particularly pertinent to situations like this, where patients have a disorder that might stop them from fully understanding the consequences of their actions. Um, I can go into that in a bit more detail. So would this be a little bit about kind of hold, so we can say somebody is morally responsible for their actions, and that's kind of, in some sense, like a an absolute judgment about what's sort of true, whereas blaming seems a little bit more about the, the sort of the social practices and the culture, right? The kind of, it's like holding somebody to account or sort of giving somebody, yeah, like treating somebody in a negative way as a result of holding them responsible. Right? Yeah, that's the way I see it. I see responsibility as the first part and praise and blame as the second part that we choose to enact, I guess. So you can say that someone is responsible for something and then you can withhold the blame that you feel that they deserve as a response, as a, as a response to that. Yeah, so like I, I guess sort of a, a classic example of that might be like with a child or something as a parent, you might think this kid knows what they're doing. They've done something that um, had a negative effect, but there might be sort of good reasons as a parent why you think it's helpful to not blame them, to kind of talk through the things with them and to, to treat them in a different way. Yeah, that that is essentially what I think is relevant here as well, because there are good reasons to not blame patients. We know that when we blame patients, we're also hindering their recovery. And so I think similar to that example with the child, um, we're pushing patients not engage with services and making it more difficult for them to lead a normal life, really, I think, when we label them as difficult or bad. So, Okay, great. So I remember from the, the dissertation, you had these two uh, sort of these two conditions of trying to understand whether patients with borderline personality disorder diagnoses could be held responsible or morally responsible for their actions. And we're going to separate this for now from the question of blame, right? So it'd be it'd be great to hear you talk a little bit more about these two conditions. Yeah, so I talk about the two Aristotelian conditions to moral responsibility, which basically helps you decide whether or not someone can be praised or blamed for an action. And so the first one is the freedom-relevant condition. So that one's basically about whether or not someone makes a choice freely. So I think the common example that often gets given here is if you have a gun to your head, then obviously you're not making a choice freely. So in the terms of borderline personality disorder, obviously when you're attacking staff or when you're having problems with relationships, you don't usually have a gun to your head. But I think the way that it can be understood in that context is whether or not their behavior is the inevitable consequence of the traumatic upbringing that a lot of patients have or a biological vulnerability or something wrong with your brain that prevents you from being able to carry out those actions. So that that is the way that I understood the freedom relevant condition. So is the patient with the borderline personality diagnosis here in kind of a, a different situation to the sort of the average person when they're sort of uh, acting in a way that we might think is inappropriate or antisocial or whatever. 
So different authors think different things. Personally, I think that there is a middle ground that we can maybe decide on here. So I do think that there is a biological element to it. And there is also an element of if you've only ever learned that this is a way to communicate with other people, then it makes sense that that's the way that you communicate with other people. So I think upbringing also plays a role. But at the same time, it's tricky to say that the past determines the future entirely. I think that people also have the ability to make their own choices. And that is what I argued in terms of freedom relevant condition. I did end up saying that it's not a good enough reason to say that borderline personality disorder patients don't know what they're doing or don't have any choice here because also patients, they do get better with treatment and that's proof in itself that we do have the freedom to make our own choices. So in a kind of a, in a perhaps a, a very qualified way, the patient suffering or diagnosed rather with the borderline personality disorder, they could meet the freedom relevant conditions. So you mentioned this this second condition, this kind of understanding condition. Um, so could you, yeah, I mean, for the audience, it'd be, be great to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I went through the freedom relevant condition first, but then I went on to the epistemic understanding condition, which essentially do you understand what you were doing? Do you understand the consequences of your actions? And that one, I think I felt a bit, I was a bit conflicted about it because I do think that what defines borderline personality disorder is an inability to think because you're so clouded by emotion. And sometimes that seems to be what prevents patients from acting in a way that might be more acceptable. So, so the impulsivity, I think, that kind of means that patients might not necessarily understand the consequences of their actions. I suppose an interesting question here, for me at least, is it seems in the moment I can completely understand how the sort of the judgment of the individual concern would be clouded. But would you want to say that sort of on reflection their judgment would still be clouded or would they be able to kind of understand the significance of their actions in a case like that, do you think? Like, say, if they'd, like, I don't know, like, behave, like, very hostilely towards staff or something. So I think it's quite tricky to say, especially in hospital, because what I find in hospital is that no one is at their best because they're unwell enough that they need to be in hospital. And so I find it quite inappropriate when... I feel like we need to give patients in hospital more leeway when they're having outbursts of anger, when they're just generally not behaving well, because to be in hospital in the first place means that you have to be in a really bad place. So essentially what I argued in this area was just to say that we we need to give patients more leeway um, and understand that, you know, if you think about even yourself, I think when you're you know, in a stressful situation, you're less, you're more likely to behave impulsively. And I think that's very true for them as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. Because it kind of made me think of if you imagine somebody sort of in a classic scenario where somebody commits a violent crime or something, usually like, aside from something like robbery or something, if you're talking about like a physical assault or something, generally, like, there's a huge extent to which we might think that their judgment was massively clouded by emotions in some way but we want I guess you want to say here that for the 
patient with uh, the borderline personality diagnosis, they're in a sort of a slightly different boat to the the average individual on the street who is clouded by emotion when they make sort of a poor choice. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So, so we kind of, uh, I guess, like a, a conclusion here of sorts, which is that the borderline personality disorder patient is can be held morally responsible for their actions, but perhaps to a slightly lesser extent than somebody not uh, with this diagnosis, right? Yeah, like I said before, I think it's about, I, I think there's middle ground. I don't think that they're fully responsible, but I also don't think that they're completely not responsible at all. And that is, I think, what leads to the idea of partial responsibility, which is what I looked at next. So the idea that someone can be superficially responsible for actions without being deeply responsible for them. Could you give kind of a example of that? Yeah, so Susan Wolf gave a really, it, I, I can't remember the name of the person that they talked about, but they talked about someone who had grown up in a situation where both of their parents were horrible people who murdered people all the time or some, something quite strange like that. And if that's the only image of what a behavior that you have, then it would make sense for that person to behave like that as an adult. And so I think that example kind of shows that someone could be superficially responsible. You know, there's nothing necessarily stopping them from carrying out those acts. But at the same time, we don't hold them deeply responsible in the way that we would someone who had had a secure upbringing where they knew the difference between, I guess, not murdering people and murdering people. <laughs> OK, yeah. So I suppose this is where um, where your thesis gets very kind of novel and interesting because you you want to kind of in these cases decouple responsibility and blame a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, so that brings me back to Picard, who I think is the first person who really did that. And the idea that moral responsibility doesn't have to entail praise and blame. So the way Picard puts it is saying that we can recognize that someone's blameworthy. We can recognize that we should blame them, maybe. But we don't actually have to blame them. We can withhold that final bit. So it's about that idea of recognizing responsibility and withholding that second judgment almost. So I suppose, would is this something that we would want to do in other cases to separate responsibility and praise and blame? Or is this something that it looks kind of primarily useful to do in these sort of cases with this particular kind of patient? I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about I guess, crime already. And I think that's another area where I can see that being quite useful just because I think we have to think about what the end goal is when we praise or blame people. And if we're looking for people to recover, if we're looking for people to move forward and, and I guess, behave in a way that is more in line with what society wants or it doesn't make sense to do things that make that more difficult for them. So... I mean, that's relevant to personality disorders, but I can also definitely see how that could be relevant to the criminal justice system as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's something that I find interesting, and I'm I'm not really sure where my own views lie on this. This kind of this idea of sort of taking. I suppose taking like punishment or the retributive urge entirely out of sort of judgments about how we ought to act when people commit sort of serious violent crimes or something like that. I can certainly understand the view. Well, I, I think I can kind of understand both sides a little bit. Like I feel like when somebody does something horrendous that you feel has these terrible consequences and things you might kind of feel like yeah I think there's a retributive urge that a lot of people feel like are wanting like good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people but then as you say there's this kind of I mean for most people the primary purpose I think of like the um, prison system and the like is obviously reform it's like a practical purpose rather than simply some kind of medieval purpose. So, yeah, I I find myself conflicted on that, perhaps, in general. I can see sort of the weight of both sides, but it seems like this is a more interesting and specific case as well, right? Yeah, I agree. And it's tricky with personality disorders because we are also essentially saying it's a part of their personality as opposed to a specific act that they've done, which I think is where it's different from, I guess, crime, because we're making it about them as people. Yeah, I mean, perhaps this is to get a touch off topic, but it, this always feels, well, this debate feels to me a little bit analogous to the the debate around sort of uh, psychopathy and how we ought to treat um, sort of psychopathic murderers and things, like whether there's, whether they can be held responsible, what ought to be done, like how we ought to act in these cases where it looks like perhaps. I guess the issue that comes up in the debates around psychopaths is the idea that um, not only do they not really fully understand what they've done in the way that somebody with like a normal moral faculty would, but also perhaps that this idea of psychopaths is sort of irredeemable, like you kind of can't, you can't get them to change their behaviour patterns. I suppose it's implicit in what you're saying that perhaps with people who have the borderline personality disorder diagnoses, that's not the case, right? That their yeah. behaviour patterns can be changed. Yeah, that's that's a tricky bit because it's strange. I find it strange how we talk about it as a persistent and pervasive disorder that's not really going to go away. But then we also know that things like dialectical talk therapy can improve symptoms. And I think that's just generally a thing that's tricky about psychiatry in general is that there's no, it's not really as black and white as other areas of medicine or, there, you know, there's no brain scan that can say, yes, you have this problem. And that's true for psychopathy as well, I think. That's why it's it's tricky to decide where the line is. Yeah, so I, but I suppose in in the in this case, in the case of the borderline personality disorder patients, part of why we might want to separate responsibility and blame is precisely for these kind of practical reasons, right? That um, 
it looks like there might be negative consequences of blaming the patient. Is that right? Yeah, it, yeah, that that is essentially why I think it's important too. Because at the end of the day, I, I do think it it hinders recovery quite significantly. So one of the significant reasons to not or to withhold blame in a case like this would be that blame looks like it's counterproductive to the patient's recovery. Yeah, yeah. So we then kind of move on to, well, I suppose we can move on to some of the other interesting and perhaps more complicated territory that the dissertation covers around uh, gender bias and around um, the concept of hermeneutical injustice, which I suspect is something that many of our listeners might be unfamiliar with. Yeah. So the second half of my dissertation, essentially, so I started with moral responsibility. And then after deciding that patients should be partially responsible and that we should withhold blame from them, that kind of led me to trying to figure out why we still blame them. Because I think most of us who've been on psychiatric wards would agree that the label of being difficult and manipulative, it's really common. And I think most people will have seen it on psych wards. So I was trying to figure out why that happens anyways. And one of the things that I found really interesting is, so I've worked in some women's services before, and a lot of the people who come through those doors often get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And a lot of those services also tend to have quite feminist perspectives. And I found that they talked about borderline personality disorder in a very different way to the medical side of things. And they often talked about borderline personality with a bit of an eye roll and said that, you know, it's a bit of a silly diagnosis. And so that kind of led me to look at what, I guess, feminist perspectives have to say on it. And what I found was that a lot of people see borderline personality disorder as a bit of an extension of hysteria, which is a bit of an outdated diagnosis in psychiatry, but it's essentially diagnosed that a lot of women used to get for essentially being quite emotional, I guess. So would the thought here, I suppose the part of the thought here is that the characteristics that we associate with borderline personality disorder are perhaps characteristics that have been stigmatized in women for a long time. Yeah, that that is essentially it. But I guess I guess the thing that I wonder here is I suppose part of what's going on here is it the overdiagnoses of borderline personality disorder in um, female patients. Yeah, so what I did find was that so some some people think it's about overdiagnosing women. I think part of it is also just the way that we characterize the label in itself, because because women are getting diagnosed with it, we also associate negative things with it, I guess. I think a, a good way to think about it is to think about PTSD as opposed to borderline personality disorder, because PTSD is a diagnosis that kind of came up as a result of, I guess, at, at its core, men going to war. Whereas BPD, a lot of patients have similar experiences, but both diagnoses are characterized in very different ways. Um, so some of the some, yeah, so some some authors think that they are essentially the same thing. We've just gendered them very differently. 
Yeah, I can certainly see that with at least traditionally PTSD being yeah associated with so-called shell shock and the idea of like male experience of trauma in conflict and things, whereas female experience of trauma out uh, in kind of perhaps the domestic sphere or something is labelled in a very different way and. Yeah, I, I expect that both patient groups are probably treated quite differently. Yeah, so that that is what I find interesting because I think label of PTSD is very, it externalizes it to an external source, whereas BPD is very much about a person's personality. It's about that pervasive, those pervasive traits within a person as opposed to an external trauma. Um and I think that, that that is quite indicative also of just how women and men present in psychiatry in general. Like, I find it interesting that, you know, if you compare antisocial personality disorder to borderline personality disorder, um, antisocial personality disorder, where people tend to act out a bit more, that tends to be diagnosed in men more than it does women, um, whereas BPD tends to be about internalizing those things. And I think that also ties in with the idea of blame, which is why we Again, I think blame is a form of internalizing things. Yeah, no, definitely. It's very, very interesting. I think in some sense that kind of gets to the the real crux of the argument of the dissertation, as I understand it, in that you kind of have the same set of symptoms, perhaps in the PTSD diagnosis and the borderline personality disorder diagnosis. But in one case, as you say, the idea is that um, the... PTSD sufferer was kind of caused to act that way by external events like a war or some kind of trauma and as such they're not really to blame whereas in some sense the cause of the borderline personality disorder is seen to sort of yeah lie within in some sense to be more of the person and we kind of see the person as to blame for those symptoms or those behaviors yeah I don't think it's just psychiatry either that holds those ideas. I think even if you look at things like endometriosis in women, um, there is this general idea, I think, in the medical world about women fabricating their pain or that their pain is in their head as opposed to external or due to a somatic cause. With the sort of the implicit thought there that they're somehow to blame in those cases. Yeah, so I, when I when I talk about endometriosis, a lot of women tend to get diagnosed with endometriosis quite late, despite it being a physical problem, because a lot of clinicians, well, well historically, a lot of clinicians would often presume that it was it, it was people just being a bit overdramatic, I guess, about period pain, really. So, yeah, this is some very interesting stuff and. I mean, I, I broadly agree, and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of these these arguments, despite perhaps not having the the level of sort of psychiatric and medical knowledge necessary to to say more than that. But so let's move on to this concept of a hermeneutical injustice or hermeneutical injustice. So this might be something that the audience is unfamiliar with, and it's perhaps something that's very much kind of at the I would, I would say perhaps like at this sort of cutting edge of what's going on in uh, modern analytic philosophy these days. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I focus on Miranda Fricker's understanding of the word or phrase hermeneutical injustice. So Fricker talks a lot about epistemic injustices, which is basically the idea of injustices that occur when there's a power dynamic at play. And hermeneutical injustice in particular is when marginalized groups, when they don't get to really decide their own label or decide their own experience. So it's, it's about the idea of, it, it's essentially about not being able to decide your own labels for yourself and not being able to care. I'm struggling for words, but that's I find that quite funny just because that is essentially what a hermeneutical injustice is. It's not having the words or the language to put your experience into um, a way that other people can understand it because you're part of that lower group. So, yeah, so I seem to remember that an example, I mean, it's a while since I've, read this, but I seem to remember an example that Miranda Fricker brings up is the idea of, say, um, sort of sexual sexual assault or sexual, I think it's sexual harassment, and how kind of there was this experience that was sort of perhaps predominantly or disproportionately experienced by women, but there wasn't kind of a terminology for it out there. Yeah, and that, that is essentially what, what hermeneutical justice is. It's not having terminology for things. And that, that is, I think, yeah, one of the most common common examples of it uh, is sexual harassment, which I think, would, which is getting a little bit better. Um, There's also a good example that she gave that I talked about in my dissertation about postpartum depression um, of this woman during the 60s, um, kind of sitting with a group of other women and kind of having that moment where she realizes and she's like, oh, this is actually a really common experience. And, you know, this isn't something that I'm just making up in my head. And kind of coming to an understanding and creating a language together um, to describe it. So is part of the injustice here the not just the not having the the language, the words, the label? Is it the the being mislabeled as well? Yeah. So Fricker talks about how being. We're going to talk a little bit about how what makes something an injustice is when the credibility of your word is deflated. And I kind of went the other way and I said, I think the problem here is that we're excessively inflating the credibility of people's words. So we're so we're putting excessive blame on people. We're, we're not recognizing the way that their negative experiences have impacted them to make them the way they are today. And so we're giving them excess responsibility when we should be withholding that blame. So we're perhaps sort of like taking what they say at face value rather than thinking about the the sort of the structural considerations or the diagnoses and things that are leading to that. Yeah, I think that's essentially what that's at the heart of epistemic injustice is essentially taking into con- taking context into account and looking at the structural things at play. So whilst I suppose it's slightly different because when we want to talk about the responsibility of children, it's much more complicated and gets into all sorts of issues. But like it might be like an analogy here could be that you sort of a child, you know, says, I hate you. I want you to die or something. And they're having like a like a tantrum or whatever. And you kind of you you take that seriously. You act as though what they're saying is men with terrible intent and that they're a terrible person rather than sort of 
understanding their childhood and the situation and the fact they're sort of saying something that they don't really mean like yeah I think that's a, yeah that, that's a good example to put it into yeah into context so I suppose alongside this idea of hermeneutical injustice we've got this sort of other concept that's sort of discussed around the same sort of topic of uh, sort of testimonial injustice and with testimonial injustice I think or epistemic injustices like this kind it's like the idea that you sort of are not taken as a credible source when you say certain things due to sort of power dynamics and social prejudices and the like but in a funny sort of way what you're kind of saying here is like a like a flipped version of that where somebody's being taken as a credible source where really they shouldn't be yeah so the example that Fricker gives for testimonial injustices is is kind of the classic example of a police officer not believing someone who's black for um the simple reason that you know the power dynamic at play there and I think this is, yeah, like you said, the reverse, where I think it's, say, a patient having an angry outburst and a doctor or any other clinician giving excessive blame to that situation or saying that they're excessively responsible. So it's it's almost, yeah, it is the opposite. So that seems like a very, very interesting and novel thesis and something that actually nobody has really said before actually and builds very interestingly on this pre-existing work in sort of uh, testimonial injustice and feminist philosophy of language and the like. So yeah I think this is a very interesting place for a, a dissertation to end up. So I don't know is it something you've uh, thought more about since then or something that you've kind of noticed in everyday life or yeah I just wonder sort of where are you now, sort of uh, a few months down the line? Yeah, I think it's 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 strange because I think with talking about tes- testimonial and hermeneutical injustices, because it's quite a new area, there's not there's not much to fall back on and to read up on. So I'm still kind of forming my own opinion, I think, and there's not much to read into to kind of help me decide where I stand on things. I think I think the part of the dissertation that I thought about the most since is, I guess, the purpose of disorder labels in themselves. Because sometimes I think would, you know, would be better if we switched to the PTSD diagnosis, like, diagnosis. And I, I don't know if it would be better. Um, I don't know if you would just be transferring on all the same stereotypes to that. So that's I think where I've where I stand now. A few months down the line, I'm, I'm thinking about that quite a bit. Yeah, it's a this is a very interesting thought, and it's one that had kind of occurred to me from sort of well speaking to people in my own life this idea that sort of people prefer a PTSD diagnosis to a personality disorder diagnosis in some sense yeah and I think I think everyone has their own opinion on it and um I don't know where I stand on it I know I know some people also don't like the idea of it being a disorder at all and they prefer the idea that we just understand that life experiences have made people in a certain way. Because when we say that someone has PTSD, we're still saying that they have a problem. And I think in a way we're not 
we're, we're still not externalizing or we're still not saying that maybe it's the way society is built. Maybe it's not the structural inequalities that are at play. It's still a personal problem when you say it's PTSD. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I sometimes thought about with the idea of PTSD and particularly with people's experiences of war, the idea that if everyone has or generally people come back with this common experience of being sort of deeply traumatized by sort of being involved in this sort of violence on this industrial scale. Perhaps it, yeah, perhaps that says more about the violence on the industrial scale than it says about the specific individuals. Yeah, that, I think that is essentially the idea, and that's that's why I'm not really sure where I stand myself. And, you know, I think another thing to think about is also why doesn't everyone who's, like, why do some people get borderline personality disorder and why do other people not get it? And why do some people get PTSD and why don't others? Um, so... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it makes it, it almost with uh, PTSD in some sense, perhaps flips it the other way where you kind of look at the people who can exist in the face of mass death and constant stress and come back apparently normal as the ones who might be the people who might be in some sense more unusual. Or yeah, more, I agree warranting some kind of label but yeah no so yeah thank you I mean this has been very interesting and it was a very interesting project to supervise and I'm sure this is something that we'll develop in the future yeah thank you the idea pod is produced by the interdisciplinary ethics applied center at the university of leeds find out more at leeds.ac.uk slash ethics Music composed and conducted by George Armitage.